Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades. Today, I'll be talking about a book. In fact, this episode is a kind of a foresight in the future, as I am stealing an episode from when we will get to World War II in the Stalin series. Originally, I thought it to put it there, but it turns out that I will have to give this book away by then, so I would like to make an episode about it while I still have it. The book is <clears throat> Tales About the Great Congress. It is published in Riga in 1940 but it was originally written in Russian in late 1939. The publishers are called Youth Article Publishing House. And yeah, you can sense the fun coming already. It was given to my grandfather, Vilnis Andreysons, and I'll read the inscription on the first page here. To Vilnis Andreysons, best student of the fourth grade in Kuldiga First High School in the 1940-1941 school year. Which means it was printed here in Latvia during the first Soviet occupation and was given to Grandpa kind of shortly before the Nazis came in. But what this book really is? Well, it's a book about the 18th Congress of the All-Union Communist Party, which happened in March 1939, in the form of stories to educate, quote, high school students and people studying in the first years in universities, end quote. Although, you know, it didn't stop people giving this book to 4th graders for good results in school. It also has some neat tales about what happened after the Congress until the end of 1939. So, how exactly do you explain Hitler's and Stalin's mutual conquest of Poland to high schoolers exactly? Well, let me entertain you, this one's gonna be fun. I have gathered and translated the more interesting fragments from this book so that you can find out what were the Soviets planning and thinking about and telling their kids about in their propaganda when the World War II had already started. And remember, at this point, they have signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with Nazi Germany, conquered Poland together with them, fought the Winter War with Finland and annexed the Baltics. So, you know, just the time period here. But now to the Congress. The first chapter is called 10th of March 1939. 
It's more than that, though. Glorious introduction from the book, quote, In the hill over the Moscow River, the Kremlin castle stands. Five ruby stars shine high above in the peaks of its towers. Even in the bleakest, rainiest weather, they can be clearly seen, even from afar. In the past, the sailors guided their ships by the stars in the sky. Today, every working man in the world sing in their revolutionary songs how the stars of the Kremlin are now showing them the way towards freedom and happiness. When, in the 10th of March, 1939, the Spas Tower hit the 5th hour, Millions of people eagerly started to wait the first news from the Lenin-Stalin Party's 18th Congress. People turned into Moscow radio airwaves. Both coal miners in Donbass and steel mill workers in Krivorozhye and Baku oilers and Kolkhoz members and textile workers and scientists and even the seamen who in Soviet ships were sailing in far in faraway seas and oceans. In the villages of sunny Georgia, stables of Dagestan, in the northern camps, in Siberian forestry departments, hunting grounds, in Caspian, White, and Far East fisheries, people were gathering in culture houses to listen to the news from the Congress, to the words of the best people from the Bolshevik party. Coming back from their guard posts, even the famous border guards who stand watch diligently over our mighty borders, they even they came to listen. Pretty great, isn't it? Then, this chapter further on, turns to how socialism has been finally created, how amazing it is, and, you know, that there's no more exploitation and how everything's amazing. Until we get to this brilliant part. Like lighthouses throw rays of light far, far into the stormy sea, and aid ships to reach safe harbor in the coasts, in the same way the Bolshevik Party Congresses show us the way to those times when the happiness of the people will know no bounds. Now, when the socialism has been built, the era of communism is sure to follow shortly. And, uh, yeah. Here I'd like to add that the date of the promises of arrival of true communism was always moved forward. As far as I remember, the last one, which was announced shortly before the collapse, was about year 2000. All nations, full with hopes and pride, follow the achievements of the Soviet Union. They see that there is only one country on the planet where people live better and better each year, turning their country into a flourishing garden. Yeah, this is this is where the real bombs hit in, because uh, the following, what I'm going to read next, is um, obviously meant in addition to this brave statement. It is one of the most bizarre things I've read in Soviet propaganda materials, and remember that I dedicated a whole episode about how they said that Americans literally kill babies and drink their blood in Korea. This is an explanation here. Something that quite honestly shocked me. <clears throat> when the Red Army detachments crossed the former panist bourgeoisie Poland borders, liberating the brother and blood relative nations of western Ukraine and western Belarus, the Red Army soldiers were greeted with joy and jubilation. And the next one just kills me. From dawn until dusk, they were surrounded by happy, cheerful mobs of workers, servants, farmers, and scientists. With tears in their eyes, they told the Red Army soldiers, We have awaited you, ambassadors from the land of socialism, from the land of plenty. We waited for you for decades. Polish Schlachta oppressed us. They took the rights of work from us. They took the rights to study and speak in our mother tongue. 
the bourgeoisie pants spread all sorts of lies and fake stories about the Soviet Union. They imprisoned us for listening to Soviet radio stations for many years. But we were not afraid of prison. We braved every danger just to learn something more about the victories of the great socialistic country, about its famous heroes, about Stahanovci, great scientists, excellent polar explorers, and talented artists. We believed that the day of happiness will come, when the borders will be destroyed and our Soviet brothers will come and save us, teach us how to live a new, happy life without exploitation from our Polish oppressors. And this, this long-awaited day of happiness, it finally came in the 17th of September, 1939. Panist bourgeoisie Poland finally stopped existing and the West Ukrainian and West Belarus nations finally were united in perpetuity with the nations of the Soviet Union. And now, together with us, the Soviets, they will fight for the final victory of communism. Yeah. This is how uh, the Soviets and their propaganda tried to explain how they can um, liberate everyone and everything. And it's kind of weird starting, because, you know, the, the Polish tragedy has always been at the center of World War II, and, and um, at this point, they're basically explaining why would they uh, conquer and take things away from other governments. Further on, there's about how the Soviet people are obviously the best at everything that I do forever, and how they're very excited when, uh, quote, <clears throat> All of the land happily received the news about the 18th Party Congress. Because, of course, with the first speech in the Congress, there's, there was Comrade Stalin speaking. But every word of Stalin, like a projector, lights the path to communism. Everything that seems complex and hard becomes simple and easy to understand. End quote. After some euphoria about how everyone's super thankful about the speech of Stalin... Uh, though, which we'll get to that later, the book continues about the reports of the successes of the working people, about how everyone has completed and even overdone their plans. Uh, some moments from this raise interest, however, even though it's, for the most part, the usual totally fake numbers and weirdness, but uh, some things are really crazy. First off, quote, the train machinists report about trains that have been fooled up with cargo and launched on their way faster than was planned. End quote. So, okay, what does this mean? Either there is no train timetables, which are important, because, you know, train tracks. And, uh, and that these guys are, uh, are just, you know, participating in the massive chaos, because, you know, obviously, you can't really launch trains faster than you should. Oh, or if there is a timetable, on how the train should move, you know, all this system, that these guys are intentionally trying to sabotage it by not being precise. But, like, even this, even this pales in comparison with the strangest completion of a plan ever. Dear listeners, let me present to you the Stahanovets, a member of the Red Navy, one Plaxon, <clears throat> quote, on the Far East borders, in the competition named after the 18th Congress, the participant a member of the Red Navy, every day overdid his plan by 360 to 400 percent. Soldiers and commanders competed among themselves about the rights to be on the Stalinist Guard in the days of this historical congress, end quote. Okay, I can understand how we can overachieve in, say, producing bicycles or working in some factory or whatever, and even though that is stupid because producing stuff that nobody needs is just a waste of material, 
But here, I simply cannot even comprehend the way on how one can uh, can just overdo plans in the Navy. I mean, think about this. This guy was a conscripted ensign in the Red Navy. That is a military seaman. How does the how does he overhill his his, his norm really? What, did he wash the floors three to four times each day instead of just one? Or, or did he stay at the lookout guard for multiple shifts or something? I can just imagine his conversations with other people on the same ship, trying to finally relieve this crazy, half-zombified, sleep-deprived person from, from staring into the radar screen while being half-asleep. But he's, like, sending them away because complete the plan. Or, you know, maybe he was in the mechanical department. This hero must have been tightening the bolts and then loosening the bolts and then tightening them again. Because, you know, doing something. If you have any ideas, let me know, because because I, I personally don't have any. Oh, and about letting me know, I'm sorry I haven't had the time due to personal difficulties to respond to all of your messages and emails. I will get to that shirt shortly. Uh, we moved with Alice, so um, another personal things happened, so I terribly apologize. I will be getting to your mails shortly. Anyhow, then... This whole thing continues with uh, more such heroic stories and um, about how some visitors of the Congress who visited Moscow for the first time were all struck by the Red Square. Quote, Where the navel of the world rests, Lenin's mausoleum, around which the hopes of every worker on the planet are turning. But, but, I'd rather get to the meat of the Congress in this splendid book. The introduction chapter, this one, concludes with a Molotov of the secret pacts and diplomacy fame, announcing Stalin's first introductory speech in the Congress. Quote, Let us move to the first item in today's agenda. Comrade Stalin, please give us the complete overview report, Molotov said. Everyone in our country awaited this moment, holding their breaths. Comrade Stalin was standing on the podium and was waiting when the loud stormy ovations and applause would end in the hall. Stalin waved to ensure silence, but to no avail. People simply couldn't hold their joy within them. Yeah, <laughs> weirdly enough, the introduction to the chapter actually does not publish the speech itself. It just mentions that it was short, genius, and very inspiring in the great Soviet country. Again, from the book. The report of Comrade Stalin made the Marxist-Leninist theory richer with new theses and conclusions about the construction of a communist society while being surrounded by capitalists. His report was a program in the struggle for future, even larger and more grandiose, full with victories of the Soviet people. So, you know, everything is massive and everything is amazing. But now, let's go on to the various reports on different subjects themselves now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. First report, at least how it's written in this book was about the foreign policy of the USSR. 
and was written and read by our friend Bujonni. I introduced him to you in the Tsaritsyn episode. He was the cavalry commander with uh, zero charisma leadership skills, who was in Stalin's crew from that time. Anyhow, his marvelous speech is called, quote, The land of socialism is undefeatable. In this note, I again remind you, be- before you before you kind of listen to the further ahead, uh, I remind you that Soviets at this time, when this book was published, had annexed the Baltics, split Poland with the Nazis, and fought in the Winter War, and uh, taking Laroga and Karelia from Finland. Just to put things in perspective once again. Oh, and also please remember how uh, truthful and filled with nothing but facts this, this book has been so far. It's going on. So, uh, carrying on with this. The capitalistic world, torn apart by their differences, is collapsing, being shredded. A new imperialistic war now covers an immense territory from Shanghai to Gibraltar. Hundreds of millions of people are involved in this war. The map of Europe, Africa and Asia is being remade with violence. Our foreign policy must be guarded by strength. Then, then Budyonny declares the new Soviet foreign policy, at least in, and, and he presents it in four points. Well, obviously I skipped out of the parts where he praises Stalin on how great he is and, and so forth. But it all comes down to after massive praises on, on how extremely tough and hardcore the Soviets are. It all comes down to these four points. Number one, we stand for peace and professional close ties with all the countries. That is, and will be our position, insofar as these countries will keep the same attitude towards the Soviet Union, and insofar they won't attack our interests. So you know, Nazi Germany is uh, A-OK with the nice pact that we signed with them, and boy how cool it was when we liberated Poland together with them. Yeah, they seem like cool dudes, obviously. Number two. We stand for peaceful, good neighborly ties with all those countries with which we share a common border. That is, and will be our position, as long as they follow the same rules and don't try to, directly or indirectly, corrupt the integrity of our borders. Said in March 1939. By the end of this year, and by the book, was published a ton of the Soviet neighbors. Well, yeah, let's just say they got to feel what those words really meant. Number three. We stand for the support of those peoples who have become the victims of aggression and are fighting for the independence of their people. I'll translate here. That is, Soviets stand for those fake, in exile, fabricated governments that they have put together in Moscow as a pretext to take over other places. And number four. We are not afraid of threats from the aggressive countries and we are ready to respond to every strike against us with double blowback to those militarist capitalist firestarters who will want to threaten the Soviet borders in some way or another. And as their buddy-buddy with Hitler at this point, you can probably guess what the long-term plans were here and uh, and what countries Budyonny here was actually talking about. It's it's fun stuff all itself. Then, then, Budyonny speaks about the military statistics and the might of the Red Army, comparing it to the German and French militaries. We'll get to those, we'll get to this data with documented evidence and in detail from real sources, not propaganda speeches in the glorified recreation of this Congress, once we'll get to this time in our Stalin series. For now, let us remember that our author is first and foremost a completely talentless salary commander, and it's 1939. But of course, he will spare some neat praises of the Red Riders, which obviously would play a crucial role in the coming war. Quote, The Red Cavalry, in the last few years, has increased in size dramatically. It has acquired a rich assortment of all kinds of technology, light and heavy machine guns, tanks, 
and anti-air artillery that will help it in the fight against enemy airplanes. In the Civil War, the Red Cavalry did a lot of heroic acts. For good reason, it is still praised in folk songs of the Soviet people, for the magnificent victories of the Red Riders. The Civil War was already over, but a lot of the military experts from various countries still always studied the adventures of the Red Cavalry and couldn't stop marveling about its successes. In the fight to come, our cavalry will write more glorious pages of military history. Now, for once, I kind of have to agree here, because marveling is a neat word. I, I also would marvel on how they managed to win, you know, with a ragtag gang of ex-bandits and murderers, but a lot of that has to be blamed on the incompetence of the whites as well, really. And, and you might say here that I'm being too sarcastic, and uh, I just know that my quality assurance guy will hate me for this. But this, this at least for me, is a national response caused by the sheer absurdity of this book and the blatantness of the information and the crazy lies that are just sometimes written here, some of which, are actually, some of which I'm actually skipping. Talking about which, uh, yeah, let us, let us talk about one precise incident. I'm talking about Lake Hassan incident. See, Bujonni provides in this speech, in this report, this Lake Hassan border incident as proof about how excellent and great the Red Army is. And later on in the army, when they will get some other military veterans, which I won't bother you with, but they participate in this congress, they will be used as an example. Because uh, at this point, the Soviets use this Lake Hassan incident, while because they can't really use the Winter War or the Poland campaign, they use this Lake Hassan incident as kind of their main driving force of their military glory and their great successes. Kind of like, kind of like in modern day, Putin uses how he won in World War II, even though Putin's government had nothing to do with it. But, uh, but yeah, about this Lake Hassan incident, here's what Budjonli writes from the book. Quote, In the Congress, the participants of the Lake Hassan battle also spoke. They told how amazing the Red Army had been in battle, when they had to force the Japanese army in the far east away from the territory that they had sneakingly occupied. The heroic companies of the Red Army did that fast and excellently. They were driven from this honor from the Soviet land and they suffered such great losses that they didn't even know how to justify themselves. Japanese militarists tried to weakly explain to their rulers their immense losses with flood, but that affected our army too. So the Japanese militarists finally got to feel the strength and the might of the Red Army on their own skins. Comrades, our army is truly undefeatable. And yeah, over there, uh, obviously the book then describes a ton of ovations, praises to Stalin and whatever. But um, but really, uh, as I'm studying for our World War II episodes onwards, in reality, however, things went a bit different. See, this battle of Lake Hassan, it happened from July 29th to August 11th of 1938. And it was an attempted military incursion by the Japanese into the territory claimed by the Soviet Union. This incursion was founded in the belief of the Japanese side that the Soviet Union <clears throat> misinterpreted the demarcation of the boundary based on the Treaty of Peking between Imperial Russia and the Qing Dynasty China, and, uh, well, obviously subs subsequent supplementary agreements on, on this demarcation. Basically, they thought the Soviets were overstepping their, bou their boundaries and, you know, stepping on conflicted lands. And they also believed that the demarcation markers of the borders, they, they, those were tampered with. So, diplomatic shenanigans happened, both sides launching various insults towards each other. Uh, Soviets arrived and occupied the coast of the lake, 
with the disputed territories because uh, they thought it would give them an advantageous position on overlooking the nearby Korean port city. Japanese forces were ordered to counterattack, so they fought for a while there. Sadly, although this is an interesting accident, it's beyond the scope of this episode to go there in detail, so I will just now tell you about the forces and how it all really ended. So, uh, here, uh, the Soviets had 22,950 troops, 354 tanks, 13 self-propelled guns, 237 artillery pieces, and 250 aircraft, including 180 bombers. The Japanese had about 7,000 troops and 37 artillery pieces. Period. Of these, Japanese had 526 killed and 913 wounded. Soviets, meanwhile, lost 792 people killed, 3,279 people wounded, 96 tanks destroyed or crippled. Now, how does that sound for casualty rates? This, this is some um, some winter war stuff. Now, although, despite repelling the Soviet thrusts there in, in this position in their counterattack, as Japanese in a counterattack take their positions and then the Soviets launch attacks on them, after a while, it was clear that the local Japanese units, they, they will not be able to keep this place without widening the conflict. That is, they, they quickly counterattack, grab some territory, but Soviets were just throwing so much men at them, they will be just overrun very quickly. So, on August the 10th, Japanese ambassador Mamoru Shigemitsu, he asked for peace. He was satisfied that the incident had been brought to an honorable conclusion. On August 11th, 1938, the Japanese stopped fighting, retreated, and Soviet forces reoccupied the heights, while, all the while, kind of suffering these ridiculously terrible losses against an opponent that didn't even have, any, that had like no tanks and no aircraft, which is amazing. After this, after this, more than 6,500 Soviet officers and soldiers were awarded. They were awarded the orders and decorations and medals of the Soviet Union. 26 of them were awarded with the title Hero of the Soviet Union, and 95 were awarded with the Order of Lenin. The Soviet losses were blamed on the incompetence of uh, their general, Vasily Blucher, which had previously escaped the purges by literally being in the Far East and being the commander there, so he just couldn't be shot, really. But by now, this this whole terrible, terrible loss of life and, and like, technology really gave, um, gave some pretext. So on October 22nd, 1938, he was arrested by the NKVD, that is the Cheka, which will further on turn into KGB. He was tortured in prison and later shot by Stalin's personal order. But here in March 10th, this whole thing is nicely presented as an extremely massive com Soviet success. Progress, comrades. And as my lovely Congress book states, quote, We, the Soviets, not only know how to wage it, but we also love war. Amazing, isn't it? And this chapter here, uh, it ends with another reminder on how this undefeatable, peace-loving army spreads love and socialism around the world. Quote, no other army in the world receives such respect, love, and care as our Red Army. Our brothers, the nations of West Ukraine and West Belarus, were joyful and happy when they were liberated from the yoke of the evil Polish people, the historical oppressors and enemies of Belarus and Ukraine. End quote. 
Now isn't this grand? The next chapter covers the political struggles within the party and how the promotion of the communist ideology is going, how the party is spreading and what's going on. Written by Alexei Badayev, important communist who was uh, technically the nominal leader of the Russian Federated Socialist Republic within the USSR, because, you know, each republic has its own government, including Russia. Uh, another one from Stalin's own gang, by the way. Here, besides all the propaganda on how the party is the guideline, how awesome Stalin is, and how now finally everyone can be happy in the workers' paradise, in the background, some explanations of the purges of 1937 are given. After all, they happened in between the 17th Congress, which happened in 1934, which we will also cover, and in early 39, they're still very, very fresh. And you know, they're also amazing political tools, after all. So, from the book, The Destruction of the Enemy. The courts of Pyatyakov, Radek, and others, of Tukhachevsky and his criminal gang, of Bukharin, Bukharin of the Nep fame, of Rikov and similar scumbags, these clearly showed that Bukharinists and Trotskists have been a foul, vicious, counter-revolutionary gang of bloodhounds. These courts showed that starting from the very first days of the October Revolution, all of these foul abominations, putting all the human race to shame, have been conspiring against the party, against Lenin and Stalin, against the Soviet state. For almost 20 years, they continued their hypocritical, evil work, like snakes, tricking the party and the working class. It was Trotskists and Bukharinists who tried to stop the Brest Treaty with Germany, thus sabotaging our relationships with them and causing harm to our country. It was the Trotskyist Bukharinist gang, which in 1918 conspired against Lenin and united with the so-called left Essers to arrest and kill the leaders of the revolution, Lenin, Stalin and Sverdlov. It was Trotskyists and Bukharinists who, in the summer of 1918, tried, with foul intention, to assassinate Lenin. It was Trotskyists and Bukharinists who have multiple times tried to destroy the party unity and bring our glorious country down. In the time when the party and the people fought for the Stalinist five-year plans, the Trotskyist Bukharinist abominations were committing treasonous sabotage, explosions, and diversions. And here's the kicker. And they did it all for their true hidden masters, the secret service agencies of the Western bourgeoisie capitalist countries. End quote. See? Obviously these guys were literally the devil. Sadly, many people in this Congress didn't know that they too will become the devil later on, and that there are many ice picks and bullets in both the great Soviet motherland and in the minds of Stalin. Then, after this nice explanation on why shooting people is awesome, Comrade Stalin talks about how the socialist state should look like, and how it should work with the party. State as an institution, said Stalin was founded when the society split apart in warring classes, so that the majority could be exploited by the interests of the ruling minority. The power of the state is mostly expressed in the army, penal organs, spying, and prisons. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, actually. You know, Stalin's talking about this, after all. So, Badayev adds, after, again, quite a lot of praises of socialism, mm, so that the state could serve the interests of the working class, the working class needs not only to overthrow the bourgeoisie power, not only they need to expropriate the capitalists and the nobility, that is, to take factories, industries, banks, land and everything away from them and physically eliminate them, but they also need to smash, to destroy the machine of the bourgeoisie state, with all of its old army, bureaucracy, police, and to create a new proletariat state. And that's what the Bolsheviks did. 
They built a farmer and worker country, the most powerful, the most free, the most democratic country in the world. Woohoo! <coughs> glorious, glorious. Yeah, it's just... I can't really hold myself out of this joy from this whole Congress thing, especially since it was given in, in 1940 to my to my grandpa after after um, a lot of his family had been like shot or deported or whatever. So um, it's it's a very very sarcastic type of fun. Anyhow, this chapter ends with some again really really great praise of Stalin because you know if you don't do that you're on the short list as Stalin clearly knows best about everything and everyone. Quote, the strength of our party is the fact that it's being led by Lenin's best student and comrade in arms, the continuator of his great work, Comrade Stalin. Stalin, he is the Lenin of today. I, I just love this one. Stalin is both the heart and brain of our party. Stalin inspires millions of communists to struggle and guides our country to communism with a firm hand. Stalin guarded the Marxist-Leninist science from all the opponents it had, developed it, and moved it forward. Stalin has multiplied the riches of the Marxist-Leninist science with new theses and conclusions, with new experiences of the proletariat class struggle. With thoughts of Stalin, our people perform their great achievements. With the word of Stalin on their lips, our brothers in foreign lands go to the barricades to fight the bourgeoisie oppressors. Every working man in every country loves Stalin with passion and with endless fervor. Everyone sees their leader and friend, their teacher and father in Stalin. The great and fa famous Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin flag, the flag of communism, will triumph all over the world. End quote. Now, if you think about it, isn't this just great? I imagine how, for example, like uh, Swedish Social Democrats or, or Bernie Sanders, how Bernie descends in some, some uh, deep shrine underground to, to worship Stalin in secret. But such silliness as facts and reason, no, 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 they, they don't stop the Bolsheviks. It's not in the party line, you see. The following chapter of the rest of the book, really, is uh, all about the economy and the internal issues of the Soviet state. And even though it's a goldmine for me, the problem here is that although I will use this whole source for the future episodes in some role or another, because, you know, I've saved enough from this book, they consist mostly of lies about statistics, impossible numbers, like one chapter is written literally by Stahanov himself, and nonsense propaganda that makes my head hurt. And, you know, I do want to save some things for the future episodes after all. For now... I'd love to turn to the final chapter that I will be looking at today. It's called To the First Place in the World, and it's written by Ivan Gudov, Soviet economist and mechanist Stahanovets. He was also a member of the Politburo, obviously. First here, he obviously praises Stalin just like everyone else, and remembers the day when Stalin told him personally, <clears throat> good job. And the quote that he gives there is, is too great not to quote. <clears throat> I couldn't breathe, my heart was racing. There was only one thought in my head. Comrade Stalin praised me. Stalin himself praised me. That was more than any award could ever be. Anyhow, this person here writes about the comparison between the systems. And this is going to be a long quote here. In our country and in theirs. The last five years for the Soviet state have been years of growth, of flourishing, of both cultural and economical prosperity, growth of military power, Years of struggle and fighting. Fighting for keeping the peace all over the world. This is already funny knowing the political events, but, but hold on, hold on, it gets better. 
But in the capitalistic countries, these years have been ones of both economical and military disasters. Years of new crises, both in industry and agriculture. Over here in the USSR, nobody is worrying about tomorrow. Neither the worker, nor the farmer, nor the intelligent need to work or worry about where to get their bread. Uh, this is for me again, because, you know, after all, for some, they're sitting in gulags and, you know, they just won't get any bread and they know it, so hey, why worry? But carrying on, because uh, I'm, I'm sorry for not, not being very systematic here, but um, this, this, uh, this translation of this book just irritated me to no end. Anyhow, we have total job security, solid salary, education, relaxation, health care. But over there, poverty, lawlessness, and oppression. And I do have to wonder how Comrade Gudov knows this, because uh, he has never, ever been outside the Soviet Union at all. And the only information he has got is from the official newspapers, like Pravda, which is uh, kind of crazy here, but, but fine. The amount of unemployed in the capitalistic countries has reached 18 million. Those people and their families are starving, but those who are working don't have it any better. The workday is 14 to 15 hours long. It's 1939 we're talking about again. I highly doubt that in the United States or in the UK or like France or whatever, that anyone still works 14 to 15 hours. But nonetheless, in Japan, it's 16 hours, but the wages they make only provide for a meager and miserable subsistence existence. In the United States of America, which are called, by the way, United States of North America in this book, for some reason, they always, they never say USA, they say United States of North America, but whatever. So in the United States of America, currently there can be found a strange type of a so-called nomad, those are bankrupt farmers who, with their families and everything that they own, wander from one town to another, looking for work. But their effort is in vain, as there are starving people in literally every town. Such nomads in the United States are more than two million people. But not only farmers are starving, there are multiple millions of workers and servants being such nomads, because they're left out of work. But completely different view is painted in our country, where socialism has finally won. Yeah, the United States is kind of not known for forced labor and, and gulags, so, hey. Carrying on again. Comrade Stalin has clearly shown us how, in the conflict between the capitalistic and socialistic systems, the capitalism will always lose. Once backwards uncultured Russia, which was weak under the Tsarist government weight, under the yoke of the nobles, capitalists, clergy, and kulaks, now has thrown away the centuries of backwardness and has moved on to be among the world leaders in everything. Now isn't now isn't that great? However, after this pathos, Comrade Gudov here needs to talk about some some hard data, and and facts, and, and those are not very pleasing. But when has that ever stopped a good Bolshevik? Hmm? He talks about the historical mission, about how the Soviet growth in the years since 1913 has far exceeded the capitalist growth. So he wonders why do the Soviets are still backwards economically when you take it per capita, and 1913 is picked here because these guys in um, in the Congress claim that Soviet economy has increased over the old Tsarist economy, and here's a thingy, by at least 500%, and they've picked 1913 because according to the Soviet people, 1913 was the greatest year, pre-war year, uh, of the capitalist systems on planet Earth. And they claim that the Soviet economy has grown by 500%, while the capitalists have only managed about 20 to 30% growth, 
and they're still kind of confused about, well, why are capitalists still in front of Soviet Union in literally everything? So, quote, In 1938, we produced around 15 million tons of steel. The United Kingdom, at the time, about 7 million tons. Looks pretty great, but if you turn these numbers into per capita, then you can see that in the UK, it's 145 kilograms of steel per person, while over here, only 87 kilograms. And then he provides a myriad of other examples like these. Not very flattering. Even if the numbers are true, but without there being any more or less reasonable way of this person acquiring legitimate data, except the Soviet Statistics Office, or, you know, someone just handling him these papers and telling him that this is how it is. Uh, yeah. They can also seriously be doubted, I think. Anyhow, so what? what is the explanation? Well, obviously. Evil capitalists, of course. Quote, we know that there are millions of unemployed, of poor people who are now living off a life of subsistence and misery, who are now basically slaves to the capitalists. All the riches there belong to a bourgeoisie capitalists, industrialists and bankers. Only a smart, small part of them live a life of luxury, while the large masses, over 90%, live in destitute poverty. But over here, we don't have exploitation or waste. Everyone is working for themselves, for their own socialistic motherland. But how, then, can we explain that even with our grandiose work, that we, we've done all the growth that we have, and our excellent production techniques, we are still behind the developed capitalist nations? The answer is clear. Until very recently, our country, when it came to industry, was extremely backwards. The capitalists and nobles left a very difficult legacy for the Russian working class. As Lenin had said, that in Russia, capitalists and nobles sentenced five-sixths of the Russian people to poverty, but all the land in general to cold and rot. So, yeah, he blames the capitalists again for everything, and he just kind of presumes that everything's quite cool now. And that kind of conflicts with the statements before, because, hey, yeah, those guys are producing way less, and yet everyone lives way better. That doesn't really work together. This is as much as I can force myself to do from pure, pure, undilated Soviet propaganda, and just remember this episode. It'll come useful later on when we finally get to World War II. And this is propaganda in its purest form. And it's amazing. It is amazing because literally every speech and every page, every page here is just full of praises of Stalin, praises of greatness and this humongous personality cult. I mean, this is what they do. They don't care about facts. They, they uh, lie as much as humanly possible because the more grandiose the lie, the better it sounds, and the better they can make it work. And the fact that it was given like, to a fourth grader here in Latvia after this book was published, it also says something, doesn't it? I mean, this is how the whole propaganda system goes on. And I'll leave you with these, these weird, interesting thoughts about how the Soviets try to propagate their own country and their own culture amongst their own people, and those whom they have conquered, who can now read about how peaceful the Soviet Union was in 1939, and in 1940, you know, this book is reprinted in Latvian and given to us after after we were annexed. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we shall return to this book, because like I said, I've, I've saved up a large part of it. Do svidenje, tvarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory.
Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.